Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Katiana Krachenko. And I'm Leah Harding. Circuit Judge John Cooper ruled today that Governor Rick Scott's privatization plan violates Florida Constitution. Governor Scott and others have claimed privatizing would save the state money. Today, I spoke with special counsel for AFC. SCME in Florida, Alma Gonzalez, who says the court order underlines the principle that Governor Scott must play by the rules. A judge today ruled that Governor Rick Scott's privatization plan violates Florida's constitution. How exactly does it violate the constitution? What the judge determined was that the governor's decision to put forward through the Legislative Budget Commission an amendment to the general appropriations bill that moved over $200 million into a private contract was unconstitutional. What's important is that the court's order helps underline the principle that the governor cannot play fast and loose with the Florida's constitution. If he wants to let privateers make profit from prisoners, he's going to have to play by the rules. So what would playing by the rules then look like in this case? Well, hopefully, now we'll be able to take the discussion about prison privatization out of the back rooms where only a few politicians get to decide who gets paid. The public has the right to know how the private prison industry thrives in a pay-to-play culture. So then what exactly is the privatization plan? What does that exactly consist of? What the governor attempted to do was to give... Uh, thousands of public employee jobs over to a privateer and have them provide health care services for prisoners. They were unsuccessful in doing that through the legislature, so they tried to do it through the Appropriations Act in a proviso. That proviso expired, and despite the fact that it expired, the governor's agency in the Department of Corrections moved forward to try to privatize those jobs. How long do you think it would take to get legislative authority to approve this financially? Well, the legislature will convene again uh, in the beginning of March, and the new uh, Appropriations Act will go into effect July 1 of 2013. And so it gives us the opportunity to make sure where all of Floridians' interests are taken into account. What would some of those interests be? Well, obviously... The ability to live in a safer community is a very important interest. The important thing that I would want to add, Leah, is that hundreds and thousands of public employees are, you know, hang, their lives hang in the balance. And we would like for the governor to stop now and stabilize this system uh, with regard to health care service providers in the prisons. These families deserve the opportunity to live their lives with some certainty and without having to have their entire lives destabilized by people not knowing what it is that is going to end up happening. That was my conversation with AFSCME Special Counsel Alma Gonzalez. Florida leaders have yet to comment on the issue to us. Twin spacecraft have captured the clearest sounds yet from Earth's radiation belts. And as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Chip Scambus reports, they mimic the chipping of birds. For Larry Granroth, the so-called chorus waves sound like something out of a movie. So there's a wide variety of sounds. I mean, some, 
some of the chorus, for example, it, it was called Don Chorus because it sounds like uh, jungle birds chirping in the morning. <laughs> um, some of the Whistler recordings uh, that I've put online sound sort of like uh, sci-fi movie sound effects, you know, with spacecraft chasing each other and shooting lasers or something. He's a data analyst for NASA's Electric and Magnetic Field Instrument Suite and Integrated Science Team at the University of Iowa. The team released these recordings from the Van Allen belt. Granroth says the NASA Van Allen probes have been exploring the hostile radiation belt surrounding Earth, collecting detailed measures of high-energy particles and radio waves. An interesting thing about this project is it's, is it's really a fire hose of, <laughs> of data. We're getting a huge amount of information compared to, you know, even other fairly recent Earth-orbiting spacecraft. Um, on this, on the uh, Van Allen probes, of course, there's two of them, and on each of them there's three magnetic and three electric sensors each. So for much of the time, for the high-rate data, we're getting, you know, six or 12 simultaneous sets of samples at, you know, hundreds of thousands of samples per second. The Van Allen belts protect the Earth from space rays like solar winds by collecting the radiation. Bill Kurth is a scientist working on the project. He says these chirps explain how the protection works. These waves, we think, are responsible for both the loss and creation of radiation belt electrons. And so it's a very complex process. There have been other recordings of these radio waves before, according to Kurth. These phenomena are not uh, new discoveries by the Van Allen probes. The existence of chorus goes back uh, even before the space age. Uh, it is possible to detect these um, with specialized ground-based receivers, and there was a lot of speculation early on about what they were and so on, and it wasn't really until we started flying um, radio receivers into space that we understood um, their, their nature and the, uh, their connection to the radiation belts. The sounds are recordings of radio waves recorded through a receiver, just like the one you're using in your car right now. Kurth describes it as tuning into the Van Allen belt. They hope to publish more of these recordings later this month. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Chip Scambis, reporting. States have until next Friday night to decide if they should implement the federal government's new Affordable Care Act. Tom Parkinson from member station WMFE asked economic analyst Hank Fishkind about the money and costs of health care reform and if the new health care law would be good for our state's economy. It depends on the choice Florida makes. It could be good for Florida's economy if we decide to participate in the expansion of Medicaid because of the huge federal subsidies and the economic benefits that ensue from that. If we decide not to participate in the expansion, then it's uh, somewhat of a wash because of the expenses that Florida will pay as its part of the Affordable Care Act without getting the full benefits of the act. But, you know, the Health Care Act is just so incredibly complex, but this particular aspect, the expansion of Medicaid, how important is, is that component? This is a very critical issue. If the state decides to participate in the expansion of Medicaid, the federal government will pay 90 to 100 percent of the extra cost. And then the enrollment in Medicaid would be expanded dramatically. The state estimates an additional 2 million people would be covered by the state's Medicaid program under this expansion. It would cost 
$10 billion. But of that amount, the national government will pay the vast majority. But still, the state would be exposed to $1 to $2 billion of additional expense over the next five years if it decides to participate. Well, how would the state afford that? I mean, we've, the state has had budgetary problems. Where would this money come from? How would, we come up, how would the state come up with the money to do this? Well, in a couple of different ways. The budget situation for the state does look a lot better now, and it appears that there will be extra money, whether it will be one to two billion extra dollars and whether the state would want to devote all of that to this program remains to be seen. The state could increase its sales tax or other taxes if it chose to do that. Uh, also, the state is embarking upon and has petitioned the federal government to change the way in which Medicaid is provided in Florida to convert from a fee-for-service basis to a capitation or an HMO basis. And the state estimates that that would save about a billion dollars a year. So a portion of it would be made up through that cost savings. Well, now, my understanding was that the federal government would pay 100% of the cost of uh, the Medicaid expansion. Not quite 100%. And so a small percentage of a big number is a lot of dough in Florida. And so that's where we get the state's estimate of $1 to $2 billion of state cost, even accepting the federal expansion. And that's why the governor and the legislature are legitimately concerned about how to do that. All of that said, if we expand Medicaid spending, it does have significant economic benefits in Florida. Obviously, we'd have a healthier workforce and a healthier population. Secondly, we'd have this dramatic expansion of spending on health care, which has a dramatic positive economic impact. It would be the biggest economic development program our state's seen in a long time. I mean, at $10 billion a year, we're talking about creating fifty to 75,000 new jobs, and these are fairly high-paid jobs because they're in the medical area. Now, there is some cost to the economy. No doubt, if Florida participates... There'll be some additional taxes and expenses. And the Affordable Care Act has a disproportionate impact on small businesses, especially restaurants and tourist-related businesses that really are primary to our economy here in Central Florida. So will the people working in that industry as um, housekeepers or prep cooks or waiters, will they have health insurance through their employers after the uh, Affordable Care Act fully takes effect? Uh, They're going to be required to have health insurance. So they're either going to get it through their employers or they're going to get it through the exchanges. And if they are of low income, which is defined as 133% of the federal poverty line, which is about $40,000, if they have less than that, their care would be subsidized through the exchanges. So they're going to get health insurance. The question is whether it comes through the employer. The rules for the employers are still being determined, the precise rules, but they're complicated. If uh, an employer has 50 or more employees, they must provide health insurance to their full-time employees, which is defined as people working 30 hours or more. And if they fail to do that, they pay a penalty of $2,000 per employee. Now, consider the dilemma. The average worker in a restaurant or in housekeeping or at hotels earns about $24,000 in Central Florida. So a $2,000 additional cost is very significant relative to that. So what we're likely to see is a lot of 29-hour workers to avoid the 30-hour limit of full-time. We're likely to see a lot of companies break into pieces, and there'll be all kinds of shifting around to try to avoid having to cover their workers. But what we should remember is the costs don't go away. If the employers or if others don't pay the cost directly, they get shifted to society, and therefore we all pay. That was economic analyst Hank Fishkind talking with WMFE's Tom Parkinson.
Today alone, the University of Florida's College of Medicine and College of Nursing are both receiving money to improve the quality of life of their patients. Research of Prevent Blindness, or RPB, continues to support research for blinding diseases by awarding $110,000 to the University of Florida's College of Medicine Department of Ophthalmology. Additionally, a nursing alumni from UF has given a $3 million gift to UF's College of Nursing for education and research for patients dealing with traumatic brain injuries. And that reflects a new report from the National Science Foundation that shows the University of Florida has climbed in the ranks from 14th to 12th in a national ranking of research and development. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding actually spoke with Joseph Kays, the Director of Research Communications at UF, on how the university continues to improve its research rank and what that means for its future. And so regarding University of Florida's recent increase in the ranks, why is this so important for the University of Florida? This measure of research expenditures is one way of uh, comparing major national research universities around the country. Uh, And I went back and looked, and in 1992, the University of Florida was the 40th ranked university in the country. And in uh, fiscal year 2011, we were the 18th. And looking at that list, I haven't seen any institution that has kind of climbed the list uh, more than the University of Florida over that time. So what are some factors in it that have led to our increase in the type of research that we can conduct at the University of Florida? Well, the first thing is that since we are one of the three or four most comprehensive universities in the country with all of our programs on a single campus, engineering, medicine, agriculture, the liberal arts, law, all of those things on one campus, it allows our faculty to collaborate in ways that faculty at other institutions can't because literally they can walk across the street to find a collaborator in an area that uh, somebody at another university might not be able to. So that's one thing. Uh, The other two things are that about um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the university really set growing our research enterprise as as a top of the agenda item. And uh, we made it kind of everybody's business, and that increased the size of the army, the number of people who were conducting research. It was something that we looked at when we hired new faculty members. It was encouraged of our young faculty members. So we had more people doing research. The other thing is we, uh, especially since President Matchin arrived, we really made a commitment to improve our um, research space. So over the last 10 or 12 years, I think we've built about a million square feet of new research-specific space. How many different uh, research programs are there at the University of Florida? Virtually every part of the university is conducting research. Uh, Last year, our faculty submitted over 5,000 research proposals. um, And we have almost 10,000 projects active during the year. So that's medical research, it's agricultural research, it's research in the basic sciences, astronomy, physics, chemistry, um, pretty much you name it, we're doing it at the University of Florida. What could UF do to continue to rise in these ranks? Well, I think we 
um, continued to recruit uh, new faculty members who have strong research agendas. And we try to reward and encourage uh, all of our faculty to participate in research. And what type of financial assistance does UF need to continue research programs? We participate with pretty much every other university in the country in a, in a long-established process of competitive grant funding. So our faculty members uh, put together proposals that are um, evaluated against proposals from other faculty members at other institutions. And uh, the better job that we do at putting together those proposals, the more likely we are to get funding. Uh, Research, in particular, works hard to assist our faculty in putting together the best possible research proposals. So that's something we're always trying to... uh, do a good job at is to increase the cutting edge of the research conducted here absolutely I guess I was going to say that if you look at um, those rankings over the years you can really see how the University of Florida has moved from kind of a strong regional university to a real national powerhouse while still managing to be somewhat affordable also absolutely I think if if you look at um our research enterprise relative to our uh, tuition, for example, uh, and the two aren't really tied because tuition is is more on the teaching side of things, but um, we're a extremely affordable university that has faculty who are doing uh, really national leading research. That was my conversation with UF's Director of Research Communications, Joseph Kays. University presidents and student body leaders will gather tomorrow to present a proposal for Florida lawmakers about funding higher education. The press conference is part of the AIM Higher initiative, which seeks to make funding for the state university system a higher priority in Congress. University of Florida student body Senate President Christina Barnarigo hopes the press conference will convince legislators that funding for higher education is an investment, not an expenditure. U.S. is doing a lot of groundbreaking research. The press coverage um, from all the student leaders that have come together to kind of unveil this project and unveil this initiative and show kind of all the work that we've put together in this um, and really to start getting support for it and to really show the legislatures and those involved in Tallahassee how many students um, are involved with higher education, how passionate we are about our institutions and how important we see funding for these institutions. Bonarigo says students cannot afford more budget cuts, which have been steadily increasing over the past 10 years. We have seen a huge decrease in funding for higher education um, in the budget from the past 10 years. And we're just saying that we no longer can handle these budget cuts as higher education, as students. Our tuition keeps rising 15%, some cases a little bit lower, um, but usually ranges to 9% and 15%. And so what we're saying is, look, this is an investment. Our legislature should invest in higher education and not cut it. She says you have President Bernie Matchin, who will speak at tomorrow's press conference, has been supportive of the initiative. He's been tremendously supportive of the initiative and what we kind of have been doing as students. It came as students who weren't, you know, as student government leaders or whatever it may have been. This was something created by the students, and I think... All administrators from all schools really appreciate that. As students, we cared so much and wanted to start this. 
students have really come together from all universities, regardless of size, scope, or purpose as an institution. I mean, we're all different in nature, but we all came together and agreed that higher education needs to be a priority for our legislature, and they really need to look at it again and not just cut from it because it's the easiest to cut from or the first place they want to cut from, but really look at um, the impact that higher education has on our state and how beneficial it is. Florida Board of Governors Communications Director Kim Wilmoth refrained from giving out too much information about the event, but says anyone concerned for the future of higher education should tune in to the conference, which will live stream on the FloridaChannel.org. If you care about higher education in the state of Florida and the future of higher education in the state of Florida, you definitely want to tune in to this discussion from, from the university presidents. It's a unique show of unity with our university presidents um, and just a real strong, I think, message for the future of higher education in Florida. The press conference is scheduled for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning and will take place at the State Capitol Rotunda. Everyone's welcome to attend. Community colleges accept anyone who applies. In Florida, so do state colleges. That's not to be confused, though, with state universities. But students do need to take a test to see if they're ready for college courses. And in Florida, more than half are not. That's the finding of an investigation by the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting and State Impact Florida team. In the first of a series, Sarah Gonzalez tells us why so many high school graduates have to take remedial courses in college. Let's start in the classroom. R-E-E-K, reek. If you say, oh, that reeks. It smells, okay? But is it positive? Would you say, oh, yeah, I love her perfume. It reeks. Would you say that? This isn't elementary school or high school. It's college, a remedial reading class one step above the most remedial level. Associate Professor Michelle Riley is teaching students about literal and figurative language, the difference between the words wound and wound, produce and produce. It costs the same tuition as any class at Miami-Dade College. In remedial writing, the goal of the semester-long course is for college students to write one paragraph. A single paragraph composition, and it's very difficult, <laughs> yes. It makes you feel like you're, you know, dumb or something. It makes you feel really bad. Shakira Lockett took these remedial classes. She graduated from Coral Gables Senior High in 2008 and went straight to community college. When she took the placement test, she failed everything, reading, writing, and math. And it came as a surprise. In high school, she had always gotten good grades in reading and writing. Oh, all B's, A's, all the time in English. Yes, reading English was excellent for me. In 2011, about 30,000 high school graduates in Florida found out they had to take at least one remedial class. Remedial work doesn't count toward a degree. Each class is an entire semester, and students can't start college-level courses until they pass each remedial course. For Shakira Lockett, that meant she was in college for a year and a half before she took her first college-level class. My dream is to be the next Oprah Winfrey, so I have to... to struggle hard, get everything done, push myself to be where I need to be to make my parents proud of me and to make myself proud because I really want to be something in life, really, really want to. 
Education experts say part of the problem in Florida is that a high school diploma has never really meant you're ready for college. And neither has passing the FCAT, Florida's high school exit exam. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush has been a proponent of the FCAT. But now the conservative education advocate admits the test has some flaws. It's really a gateway to graduate from high school not to be college ready as evidenced by the fact that kids don't graduate because they can't pass a 10th grade level test or worse yet as you said 50 percent of our students need remedial work to be able to take a college course last year remedial education cost the state and students 168 million dollars about a third of that was for students fresh out of high school and the cost is even higher for students who have a hard time passing their remedial courses fail twice and tuition more than doubles that's what happened to shakira after she failed reading two times her mom shireen milton a school bus driver for the miami-dade school district says she struggled to help with tuition we scrapped up the money from everybody scraped up the money from everybody you know her godmother help godfather being that she's such a respectable kid i could always go to somebody for help i just hope she could make it in life you know better than her mom driving the school bus <laughs> The Florida college system used to require more remedial classes at different levels, but in an attempt to help students move through the system faster and cheaper, it reduced the requirements. And the state now offers remedial education to high school seniors, hoping they won't need to pay for the same classes in college. Matthew Ladner is with the Foundation for Excellence in Education, a Florida-based advocacy group. He points out that more students and more students of color are graduating from Florida high schools than ever before. So, he says, the need for remediation isn't surprising. A lot of those students in Florida higher education institutions today would have dropped out of high school, you know, 15 years ago, right? So, this is sort of a process on the way to success. As it turns out, increasing the number of high school graduates is not the same thing as graduating more students who are ready for college. Florida's graduation rates are still among the lowest in the country, and critics say public schools should do a better job preparing students for college work. High school teacher Valette Tucker says she's constantly surprised that even her honors students are not at the level they should be. You mean all the time? All the time. Like I look at some of my students and I said, gosh, I wish we could just, you know, be reading this piece of work or this novel. Uh, they're not there yet. They don't, they don't know the meaning of that word. The vocabulary is not where it should be. The stamina for reading. She teaches 10th grade English at Miami Northwestern, but says her students read at a 7th grade level. Again, those are honor students. Offering remedial education is what allows state and community colleges to give everyone the chance to get a college education. The alternative would mean many more students, even honor students, can't go. Shakira Lockett remembers her first professor challenging the class to make it to the finish line. Many of the students in her first remedial class moved on to the second remedial class together. And on the day she got her diploma, that professor was on the stage. She looks at me and says, how many people are you walking with that you know? And none of my friends were behind me. None of the people that I knew. It was just me. And I felt really, really accomplished. I felt really happy. I was really proud of myself. And she gave me a hug and told me, good job. Students who take remedial classes are less likely to graduate than their peers who can work toward their degrees right away. That's one of the downfalls of remedial education. With State Impact Florida, I'm Sarah Gonzalez in Miami. 
Tonight is a time for politicians on Capitol Hill to do away with talks about the fiscal cliff and lay down their verbal weapons. It's the annual lighting ceremony for the Capitol Christmas tree. And here in Florida, many families are lighting their own trees this evening. The first printed reference to Christmas trees was in Germany in 1531. In New Jersey in 1882, Edward Johnson came up with the idea of using electric lights to decorate Christmas trees, leading to the mass production of Christmas tree lights in 1890. And today, many department stores fill up showrooms with artificial Christmas trees that are lavishly decorated. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Belinda Post tells you about an alternative to buying a fake tree that's right down the road. 70-year-old Christmas tree farmer Bob Nielsen has been in business in Gilchrist County since 94. But his farm is more than evergreens. Nice goat. In addition to the petting zoo, Nielsen has a train, campfire, and gives hay rides on his green John Deere tractor. He says his favorite part of the tree business is the families who visit his home and the kids' smiling faces. Children coming out at Christmas time to get the trees. They just really enjoy that. And they, here we have a kind of a family tradition with a lot of families that come out year after year. You get to meet the people and watch the kids grow. And now we've got ones that were children that are bringing their children out to get trees. Nielsen sells his trees for $20, and he sells about 600 a year. Most people buy trees between 7 and 8 feet tall. Nielsen says the trees most people want take about six years to grow though granddaughter Skylar sometimes wants them to grow faster. It would probably be cool if I saw a small one and a few days later I saw bigger and bigger and bigger. Nielsen's always loved watching plants grow and is a retired lab assistant from the University of Florida Horticulture Sciences Department where he researched weeds and vegetables. But today, Nielsen hires help for the physical side of his business. Some of it I cheat and get high school boys to help. They're a lot younger and stronger than I am. 17-year-old Newberry High School senior Jesse Bright says he values his job at Nielsen Tree Farm. It's pretty fun. You get to meet a lot of new people, you know, a lot of friendly people. It's a very, very friendly environment. Nielsen says the people who visit his farm are the reason he's in the tree business. Our granddaughters, they were getting ready to go buy poinsettias that they were going to bring back and sell to make some money on their own. And the one girl had lost the $20 bill. And they hunted and hunted all over the farm for it because they'd been running everywhere and they couldn't find it. But later on in the day, one of the customers found the $20 bill under one of the trees in the barn and turned it in. So I thought that was really nice that it renews your faith in people. Nielsen's presented trees twice in Tallahassee, trees that would be the official Christmas tree in the governor's mansion. We took them two different years. That was pretty interesting. Took him to Tallahassee for the Commissioner of Agriculture. We made a really big deal out of it, presenting the trees. They were field trees that we had grown. They have to be Florida trees when you take them to the governor. Nielsen says every year he and his wife Joyce discuss how much longer they'll be in the tree business. But after planting new trees that won't mature for another five years, he knows he'll be around at least that long. Plus, Nielsen says it wouldn't feel like Christmas if you weren't helping someone find the perfect tree. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Belinda Post.
And now let's take a look at what's happening around the country and around the world. The plan that was put forward by House Speaker John Boehner to avoid the fiscal cliff is coming under fire from within his own party. Republican Senator Jim DeMent of South Carolina, a leader of Tea Party conservatives in Congress, is denouncing the $800 billion in higher tax revenue over 10 years that would come from Speaker's plan. DeMent says it's a tax hike that will destroy American jobs and allow politicians in Washington to spend even more while failing to reduce the debt. And as President Barack Obama sees it, tax rates for the top 2% of earners would have to go up as part of a debt-cutting deal to avoid automatic spending cuts and tax hikes next month. But he tells Bloomberg Television the rates could then be lowered next year as part of a tax overhaul that closes loopholes and limits deductions. And New York City police are questioning a suspect in the death of a subway rider who was shoved onto the tracks. The victim died at a hospital shortly after being hit by a train yesterday at a station near Times Square. Police say he tried to climb back onto the platform a few feet above, but died after getting trapped between the train and the platform's edge. Before he shot and killed the mother of his three-month-old daughter, police say NFL player Javon Belker spent some of his final hours sleeping in his car outside the home of another woman, someone he described to police as his girlfriend. Police say officers found Javon Belcher sleeping in his car outside the woman's apartment complex. Hours later, they say the Kansas City Chiefs linebacker shot and killed Cassandra Perkins and then went to the team stadium where he killed himself in front of team officials. School officials in Atlanta are discussing whether to install carbon monoxide alarms after a leak sent 42 students and five adults to the hospital yesterday. Hundreds of students were evacuated. The gas was found at potentially lethal levels near a school furnace. The alarms aren't legally required in Georgia.